Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being, and encourage community. I stress encourage community because I believe community is essential, particularly at this time in history. I also believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we are cooperative. We like hanging out together. We like doing all kinds of things together, whether it's playing baseball or watching baseball or doing a sewing circle or a reading circle. We love eating together in groups. Some of us like taking psychedelic medicines together in groups. We like doing things together because we're tribal and we're good and we're decent. But we also must remember that there is a, and I use the word must purposefully, we must remember that there's a very small percentage of us who are very different. They're still part of us, but they are very different. They are predators. They are the people who want to dominate. They've been this way since we lived in the caves. They were the ones who came out of the caves with the biggest clubs. They were the ones who then led groups. They eventually, from going in little groups to larger groups, they became what they called kings. And when they were kings, they subjected people which means the people around them were not citizens, they were subjects. A king could just say, cut off his head, and that was the end of the head. As you know, Henry VIII did that with several of his wives. Throughout all of history, we've had these people, whether it be the pharaohs in Egypt, Julius Caesar, who overthrew an experiment with democracy in a republic in Rome and created an empire. You can jump forward in history to Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Putin, Trump. These are all people who want to subject and lead by dictatorship. It's our job as people who want to maintain a democracy and a republic, a democracy, one person, one vote, a republic, everybody equal before the law. Those of us who want to maintain that must stay aware and we must get out and vote. It's essential. I grew up thinking, Oh, I live in a democracy and a republic. It's permanent. But it's not permanent. It's an experiment. It's an experiment that started with our revolution when we went against the king of England, George, and we also went against the church because George ruled by divine right, which means if you did something against the king, you were doing something against the church and God. And that was a fearsome thing to do. 
But we overthrew that, and we have this experiment. We must stay aware and maintain this experiment, I implore you. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege and honor to have with us a man I consider a friend, a man who's been with us here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics before. He's a world-famous ethnobotanist. He is the founder of the McKenna Academy. He's so well-published. If you go to Google, you'll find all kinds of information, and I urge you to go there and do research on Dennis McKenna. You want to know about him and his contribution to all of us. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dennis. Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure to appear on your show, so it's nice to be back here talking to you. It's great to have you back. I'm going to ask you a a question now that's sort of a general question about where you're at presently, and then we're going to get into what we both have agreed is the topic of the day, psychedelic science, adverse effects. We're going to talk about physiological, psychological, and boundary issues. But first, What's first? What are the things that are on your radar screen nowadays as you go through your life? Many things. I don't seem to have any problems staying busy. <laughs> What's primarily focusing my attention to the degree that I can focus attention? It gets harder and harder as I get older. But is this project called Biognosis that we're working on through the McKenna Academy, which I will be uh, talking about at Psychedelic Science? And biognosis is an umbrella for a number of things, but probably the, the key component of, of this is bridging ancestral wisdom and scientific knowledge, creating a nexus where these things, these two worldviews can come together and complement and reinforce each other. And a lot of what that has to do with is this has to do with this university in Iquitos, Peru, that I've worked with since for over 50 years. There's an herbarium at the university there. It's called UNAP is the name of the university. And there's an herbarium there that has been very important to me ever since I've been doing ethnobotanical research. That was one of the first places I visited as a graduate student in 1981. And I've worked out of the herbarium ever since. And I now have a close friendship with the curator of it, an amazing fellow named Juan Ruiz, who is, you know, it's been said that when a medicine man dies, it's as though a library has burned down, you know, and this Juan Ruiz is that library, you know, I mean, he's a scientist, but he also has another foot in traditional medicine. He's not a person who writes things down. It's all in his head. You know, so one of the projects that we're trying to do with this biognosis is to produce some documentaries. We've already produced one that is kind of an overview of the current state of indigenous communities in the region around Iquitos, but then also is about Juan and the herbarium that he is the curator of. And what we're trying to do long term is create a digital version is to digitize that herbarium and put that online in a place where it's accessible to all and where it integrates the traditional knowledge and gives the 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 traditional people you know in these communities a chance to contribute to that to share 
their knowledge on this website as well. And I'll be talking about all of that at at the Psychedelic Science Conference. In, Den- uh, in Denver, but, Colorado but in June. that's the gist of it. Yeah, in Denver, Colorado in June. Yes, I'll be there also, and I look forward to seeing you there, Dennis. So if I understand yes. you correctly, you're wanting to mine the historical information rather than lose it, and you want to integrate it with modern information and modern science. Did I get that correct? Well, it's pretty much it, yes. I mean, we don't want to lose, like, an herbarium is a kind of a library. You know, it's a, it's a collection of it's, it's a collection of dried plant specimens. And, you know, you can think, well, how boring is that? You know, but that's actually very important because <laughs> especially for a region around the Quitos where, you know, Iquitos is at the center of Amazonian biodiversity. So these collections are very valuable. They give you a snapshot of the flora of the region, not only as it exists now, but as it exists in the past, you know, because the environment changes over time. And the herbarium is one place where you can track that, or you can see that changes as the, you know, for example, you can chart the, the, the changes in the distribution of particular species. Herbaria are invaluable resources for plant plant researchers, whether they're looking for medicinal plants or they're just interested in the environmental status of plants. You know, it, it, it's a multidisciplinary kind of resource that many people in the life science can, can use for whatever purposes that, that suit them. And the idea of working on this sort of, you know, I mean, UNAP is not exactly the most well-funded academic institution in the world. You know, it's in a developing country. It has limited limited financial resources. And so the herbarium has been neglected over time. It still exists, but it's in danger of being lost. What we're trying to do is raise funds to rescue it and not only rescue it, upgrade it, but create this virtual uh, representation of it, this digital herbarium, which is what herbaria do these days. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing new. This is pretty much what all herbaria in the world do. They like to digitize their collections, but that takes money, you know, it takes funding, and that's what we're trying to do is secure the financial resources to do this for the, for the UNAP herbarium because of its unique position geographically, its connection to all of these medicinal plants and these traditions and so on. So it's worth saving, you know, and uh, that's the long-term goal of this project. Now, in your long career as an ethnobotanist, you've studied all sorts of plants. You paid particular attention to medicinal plants. And within medicinal plants, you're also well-known for studying psychedelic medicines, plants, psychedelic medicinal plants. And today we want to talk about a very challenging and difficult topic, and that is the negative or adverse effects of psychedelic plants. And as an introduction to this, Dennis, the reason I'm focusing on the adverse effects is that it is well known that the, and if you want to correct me, please do, of course, at any time. I believe it's well known that the pharmaceutical companies in the United States and perhaps around the world 
do their best to not disclose negative results. They seem to want to sanitize the results, and they even come up with words for adverse effects, such as they call them side effects, which people all over the United States now use the word side effect. But that is a sanitized way of saying adverse because it almost makes you think like it happens on the side or it happens on the side of you. You know, it's not really a big deal. And really what they are, and again, if you have a different opinion, please tell me, but I believe that they really are unwanted complications of medicine. They're unwanted complications and they're often adverse effects. And I think it's incumbent upon those in the psychedelic sciences to do the opposite of what the pharmaceutical companies have done. And instead of hiding under the table or under the rug any adverse effects, that we come out first and tell the public what they are, let them know exactly what they're dealing with, but give it to them in specifics. What percentage of the cases are going to have this? What percentage of the cases are going to have a headache or whatever it happens to be? So by that way of, of, of introduction, let's talk about adverse effects, emotional, physiological, and boundaries. Yes. Well, a pharmacologist that I respect a lot told me once, he said, show me a drug that lacks side effects and I'll show you a drug that has no effects. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, side effects, which are not necessarily adverse. They're not always adverse. They are side effects, but they very often are adverse in the sense that you'd rather they didn't happen, these side effects. Sometimes the effects are minor. They're not life-threatening. They're, you know, that just comes with the territory. Anytime you're mucking with your physiology, you're going to get a spectrum of effects. And I really think it's true. There's there is no drug that I know of that just targets the receptors, the systems that it's supposed to work on and doesn't affect any other system in the body. That's not the way physiology works. You know, you can't separate the effects. The, the thing is, uh, I think with any medicine, the, the objective is to minimize the impact of any adverse reactions and maximize the beneficial reactions. And that's certainly true with psychedelics. You know, psychedelics are, as a class of drug, as drugs go, they're remarkably safe, you know, in, in terms of their toxicology and their physiology and so on. They're, you know, I mean, you can't make blanket statements, but by and large, most psychedelics are not not physiologically toxic. You know, they're safe for people in reasonably good health to ingest. And so those issues about is this drug safe to ingest, it largely is not an issue as far as the drug itself is concerned. Now, with something like, for example, ibogaine is an example of a psychedelic medicine that definitely has issues. It has effects on the heart that are not desirable. And so that doesn't mean it should be used. It just means that therapists should be aware of this and be extra cautious in her in how you employ it. And that caution expresses itself in, in terms of, you know, having a competent therapist in a, in a setting, clinical setting. So if there are adverse effects or, you know, cardiac events and that sort of thing, you're, this can be dealt with you know and and the other side of that is be mindful of the dose there's no reason to take 
enormous doses of something like ibogaine. I think the the therapeutic uh, model for ibogaine has changed over time. It used to be that for therapy for opiate addiction and this sort of thing, people would give what is called a flood dose, you know, an enormous bolus, uh, an enormous dose of ibogaine, one to one and a half grams. That's a very high dose. And then, of course, as you know, Richard, as a physician, you know, as you escalate the dose, if there are adverse effects to worry about, then you increase the chance of adverse effects. So I think with respect to ibogaine therapy, a lot of therapists are backing off and saying better to do several medium dose sessions rather than one huge flood dose. And the therapeutic outcome is is better as well. I think with respect to uh, Adverse effects of, 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 of psychedelics in general. I mean, Ibogaine is one of the exceptions in a certain way where there's a definite, there are known potential for adverse effects. The rest of them, and by the way, Ibogaine is not, under some definition, it's not a true psychedelic. You know, it does not, it does not interact with the, these key receptors, the serotonin 2A receptors, which which most of the classic classic psychedelics like psilocybin, DMT, LSD, these sorts of things, they are target these populations of receptors, serotonin receptors. And the 5-HT2A receptor appears to be the central primary target for what I call the true psychedelics. And you could even define a psychedelic if you want to be you know, doctrinaire about it and apply a very narrow definition, you could say, well, it's got to be a 5-HT2A agonist or it's not a real psychedelic. It's something else, but it's not a psychedelic under that definition. I don't know if that's useful. But the the primary issue, I think, with the adverse effects of psychedelics is not pharmacology. It's about these very important and, and and often discussed issues of set and setting, you know, and since the days of Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, who were harping on set and setting back in the 50s, these are the key variables. When you go to a therapeutic uh, session or you use a, a, a psychedelic therapeutically, you basically got four variables. I mean, one is what is the medicine, obviously, what is the dose? These are these are both factors that impact the the use of it. But then the setting and the set are also at least as important. And the setting is, as the name implies, just the circumstances under which you do it. You know, which can be quite variable. I mean, you can do it in a clinical setting or in indoors in a in a nice, uh, you know relaxing setting, or you can do it outdoors, uh, wherever you do it, but it needs to be an appropriately, an appropriate setting. Number one, it needs to be a setting where people know that they're safe, you know, that they're looked after, that, you know, the therapists are competent and, and, and able to, uh, you know, with, without interfering with their experience, they can gently guide their experience and they can be there as a resource for people if they need it. You know, if they people get into states of anxiety, sometimes panic and, and that sort of thing. And the therapist in a clinical setting or a curandero or shaman in the ceremonial setting 
they have pretty much similar jobs, you know, which is to hold the space is the word, you know, make sure it's an appropriate setting, make, make sure that people feel safe in that setting and that they're supported, you know, and that they can reach out to the therapist if they feel they need support. So setting is just kind of obvious, you know, you don't necessarily want to do it on the freeway, you know, at 70 miles an hour. That's probably an inappropriate setting. Some people would say, well, what's wrong with taking another rock concert? Well, nothing, you know, if, if that happens to be your preference, but it's not a setting where you can easily control things if, if something goes off track. So I wouldn't tell people not to do it, but I, I think people that do it, whether they do it under the guidance of a therapist or on their own, they need to be mindful of the set and setting and just reasonable, make reasonable, take reasonable steps to make sure it's a, a good, appropriate and safe setting. Now, the set is much more complicated. The set is your mindset and the set is what you bring to it. And some people say, well, the set is your intentions and your expectations and your your state of mind. And it is that, but I think it goes much beyond that because the set is you. You know, the set is you and your life experiences and what you bring to this session, you know. And that's obviously that's going to affect your expectations and so on. So this is why to have optimal experiences with psychedelics and minimal minimize the, the, the chance for adverse reactions, it's important to not approach it casually, to approach it thoughtfully, to have some preparation before you even take the psychedelic. There may be in the usual clinical protocols, you might meet with the therapist several times before you ever take the medicine, have a number of conversations with them about what to expect, what's going to happen, what what outcome should they people look for. So there's preparation, and then there's the setting itself, the the session itself in an appropriate session setting with appropriate guidance, and then the integration, which is the post setting, the post session processing of what's happening, what's happened to you, and you you can take a psychedelic without any any post-session processing, but you won't get as much out of it. I mean, the idea is that this psychedelics open up such a different perspective, you know, to the experience. And it often takes some time to process what happened and, and you know, come away with a sense of essentially what have you learned from it, you know? And I, I think I think that's that part is very important to to integrate as as they call it you get the maximum benefit from this by that by that way and if you can do that you know if if you can't provide for integration following the sessions or a series of sessions then there is a greater chance for adverse effects to emerge over time you know and particularly you know i mean one one thing that's not often you know emphasized with psychedelics they 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 change your perspective they change your worldview you get tremendous insights apparently you know and they can be life 
transforming. They can be transformative experiences, but they can also be tricksters, you know? And I think one thing that people should bear in mind is, you know, you can't necessarily accept without examination and reflection what the insights that you're getting from psychedelics, you know? You need to allow yourself the time to, uh, you know, so take the insight, put it in a, you know, don't necessarily accept it. Think, you know, give yourself a chance to reflect on it. What do your insights look like 24 hours later or 48 hours later back in the cold, hard world of reality? You know, does it stand up or not? So I think this is... In other words, if you take a psychedelic on a Sunday, on Monday morning, you don't just decide to call your boss and quit or call your wife and say, I want a divorce or things like that, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, just give yourself give yourself time enough to, uh, you know, to let it sink in, basically, and to process it and then look at that. Give yourself, you know, that opportunity. And, and that's not exactly an adverse effect from the drug, but it's a deficiency in how you process the experience, you know? And yeah, if you take it and 48 hours later, you you know, quit your job, divorce your wife, go off to, you know, live somewhere in in the mountains in a cave. Maybe you want to be a little slow before you, maybe it is what's right for you, you know, but give yourself a chance, chance to do it. So I think that's, that's a, you know, that's a, a hazard in a certain way of psychedelics is not, is just not processing it. And I mean, I, and I mean, I'm probably a good example of somebody that didn't do that. And, you know, in some ways in the adventures that my brother and I got into with mushrooms have all been talked about. And a lot of this uh, has, you know, looking back on that experience 50 or 60 years later, you know, I mean, I'm appalled. In some I know. Ways I, that I, I'm we, just we accepted it all, and and we didn't really know what was what was going on. So I was just. I think, I'm sitting here and thinking as you're saying that that when you were in the screaming abyss, you weren't doing a bunch of uh, integration. <laughs> we were not doing a bunch of in- integration. We were hanging on for dear life. Yes, you know. I yes. mean, really, and that's we were, not, of course, and that's not what we're recommending. Yeah. Dennis, do you agree that? And I don't know if this is a potential adverse effect, but it's a potential major effect that when a person takes a sizable dose, because one of the things you said is you want to know what the medicine is, you want to know what the dose is, and then the sentence setting, those are four important variables, and you, and, and you said a dose. So when a person takes a significant dose of one of these, a true psychedelics, should one be prepared for the possibility that one is going to disrupt one's life or make major life changes, not necessarily overnight, but pretty soon because the medicine is liable to mix with the person and have that large an effect? Well, yes. Yes, it is. I mean, that's sort of the point, right? I mean, that's why you're doing it in a certain way, because these these medicines can catalyze a shift in your worldview. I mean, I, as we've talked about before, they they, you know, the therapeutic effect of these medicine is they enable you to step outside your so-called default mode network, you know, your ordinary state of consciousness, the, 
the state of consciousness most of the most of us are in most of the time you know that keeps us on track i mean it may be boring but it does keep us on track <laughs> sometimes and it also keeps us locked into habitual behaviors that may be what we're trying to deal with you know whether it's our trauma or our addiction or our uh, you know depression all of these things these can be seriously disrupted by the psychedelic and they give you a they open a window of time where you can look at these issues whatever you may be dealing with in a novel way and come back and say you know say i have better tools now to deal with my obsessions my addictions or whatever the issue is that's the whole point of the of the of the therapeutic effect is that it lets it disrupts this default mode network temporarily gives you a different perspective and then when the de- when it's done the default mode network it's just like rebooting your computer you know we've talked about this it's like a big reset the default mode network will come back together right because the brain tends toward equilibrium and it'll work better it's it's literally like you rebooted your mac or whatever maybe windows people don't yes. have this problem but if if you reboot your computer it often works better because it gets kludge accumulated and so it can be that's the therapeutic effect it can be a catalyst for this kind of change I'll give you an example of that in my own case, Dennis. I'm, you know, I'm 84 years old now. And throughout my life, I've had a lurking feeling, always sort of lurking in the background, that I'm doing something wrong or maybe even bad. And I've been through plenty of therapy and I've had a lot of psychedelics and I never could quite get a full handle on what it was. And recently, a psychedelic medicine showed it to me. And what it was is that, when I was about four and a half year, years old, I had a sexual experience uh, with, with a babysitter. And nowadays they would call it uh, sexual abuse, no question. Mm-hmm. And she was about 12 or 13 and I was about four and a half. And it was repeated over time. She was a babysitter. And the, ex- the, the psychological, physical feeling while it was going on was extraordinarily pleasurable. So every memory of it in that regard was wonderful. But what I missed was, even though the actual experience was so pleasurable, I was aware, even at four and a half, that I was doing something that was not right in our culture, not right in our society. And the way I knew it was the girl told me I couldn't tell anybody in the world. So I had this dirty secret. And what it left me with until I got into therapy when I was 16 and got unloaded some of it was this feeling that I've done something wrong or bad. And it finally came to me in a recent psychedelic experience so I could unload that last you know, bit of weight, of psychic weight. And it was a positive disruption. It was just the kind of thing that you're talking about. And I wanted to share that story. Other... You talked about Ibogaine, a flood dose, and how that could have an impact on the cardiovascular system that is adverse. Are there particular idiosyncratic adverse reactions that you want to mention to any of the others, to DMT, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT? Any of those stand out for you in terms of 
specific. Yeah, well, the yeah, the uh, I mean, one of the things you do have to be aware of is the potential for serotonin syndrome, right? And this this becomes a problem uh, or potential problem, I should say, when you're taking things like ayahuasca because you've got MAO inhibitors are one component of the ayahuasca and the other is DMT, right? It's the MAO inhibitors that need to, that are required to render the DMT orally active. And if you're taking SSRIs before you take the session, then there's a potential for inter- adverse interactions. At least there is a potential for that. So they uh, always advise people that if you're on SSRIs or other types of or any kind of clinical MAO inhibitor, you have to discontinue that before you take ayahuasca, at least three weeks ahead to give your system a chance to wash it out. And then the risk is minimal, you know, but if you don't do that, there is a potential for an adverse reaction, what they call the serotonin syndrome, which can be very uncomfortable and even fatal if it's severe. So that's a, but most people in who know about ayahuasca, who use ayahuasca, this is well known. You know, this yeah. is a known uh, caution that you have to that you have to take. The other thing is with some of the tryptamines taken other than by mouth, by injection or by smoking or in insufflation or whatever, they can have some pretty acute effects on blood pressure. They're not extreme, you know, hypertensives, but they they do increase blood pressure. So if you have issues like that where you don't want to go there, it's probably best to avoid those or take lower doses, you know. Something like psilocybin doesn't really have this this problem or or even ayahuasca, you know, in that orally active form, blood pressure issues are not really a problem. Uh uh, but if, if you if you smoke DMT and you have a you know maybe you have high blood pressure and you don't know it or you're at risk of a stroke or that kind of thing, you should be very careful about it. I yes. mean, I, I, I'm reaching the point in my own age where at my age where I have to think about these things, and I've thought you know my days of taking DMT and 5-methoxy DMT may be over, you know, <laughs> if I, <laughs> if I want to take DMT, I can take it in the form of ayahuasca. It's much safer that way in, in some ways. The first, the first time I took DMT and smoked it back in the late sixties in Ann Arbor, Michigan was the last time it had a very interesting experience. I, I smoked it and I was like zero to 60 in the cosmos in no seconds. And I came back down in a cup by maybe five minutes or less. And I immediately said to the gentleman who gave it to me, I said, I'd like to try this again. He gave it to me. And once again, like a rocket ship, I was off in the cosmos. And then I said, you know, I'm not an addictive person, but I could get addicted to this stuff. I'd like to try it again right now. And he gave it to me again. And off I went into the cosmos again. But this time when I was out there, I literally saw a big red sign saying caution on and off red sign, caution, caution. And then I heard a a voice and the voice from out of this nothingness, a voice came and said, anything that takes you that far that fast is to be treated with the deepest respect. And I came back down. I've never tried it again. It's not just the respect message that got me not to try it again. It's that 
I didn't feel in retrospect that I learned something that I could bring back and use. It happened so rapidly to the cosmos that I couldn't get a hold of anything. And I liken it to what's considered a heroic dose of LSD. Because when I've taken heroic doses of LSD, I bypass the middle zone where I can get work done, looking at my personality, go through ego death, look at various ways to improve myself. I bypass that and I go right out into the cosmos. And I remember, uh, who was it? Chris Bache told me he, he took that 93 times he took heroic doses. But in retrospect, in a way, he didn't, he didn't get the meat and potatoes, but he got the cosmos. Can you relate to what I'm saying? This is one of the deficiencies, if you want to think of it that way, of DMT and these short-acting tryptamines is they are so rapid that by the time, you know, if you, if you take them in a, other, other than in ayahuasca, if you take them in ayahuasca, you get the, the experiences stretched out over several hours. And it's much more useful if you smoke DMT or vape it or inject it the experience is so fast that by the time you begin to sort of grok what is going on in the in the state, you're already on the way down, right? You know, and uh, and so in some ways, I think it's much less useful. Uh, I mean, yes. it's certainly overwhelming and it's amazing, and I think that people should have this experience. But you don't come back with the same set of lessons that you yes. might if you spend more time in that place, you know. Uh, I mean, this was the big reason that Terrence and I went to South America in 1971, because we were utterly uh, entranced and, and obsessed with DMT. But the problem was it was so fast. We, we were looking for an orally active form that could we could spend more time in the place, which we actually thought of at the time as a place. We didn't really understand the pharmacology of uh, ayahuasca at that time, but that's what that was. So we went looking for this much more obscure uh, orally active uh, preparation called ukuhe, which I think we talked about. But I think I think that's right. Interestingly, people are some people are working now with this extended state DMT uh, clinical protocols, which you probably heard about, where you basically you have an indwelling catheter, and then you can have a continuous infusion of DMT, and you can control the dose. You know, you can increase it or decrease it. You can get to a comfort dose zone, although. I don't think there's anything about DMT that's particularly comfortable, <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> but maybe a zone that you you know you, you you can you can you know that is not completely overwhelming, and then you can extend that state yeah. for you know beyond twenty minutes. My titration spend an hour. An I don't hour think and a half. I don't think I want to be a subject in that experiment. Would might we say the well, same? Well, I thing? don't think you or I would make the inclusion criteria, <laughs> Richard, because we're old guys. You know, and this is a young man's game. I think you have to have a healthy cardiovascular system. Hell, I can't even I can't even remember when I was your age. (laughs) (laughs) You can't remember. I can't. I can't remember. I can't. That just proves that you're demented. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you're you're way. I'll be there before. You're you're, soon. Come on, you're way back in the seventies. I can hardly remember the seventies. How (laughs) might we not say the same thing? 
about 5-MeO DMT that again uh, with the same thing this so, applies so even rapid more so. that you don't grab onto anything to learn. Yeah, it, 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 it's I mean the, the the same considerations apply even more so. Although it's interesting that the quality of 5-MeO and, and DMT experiences are just different enough. You know, uh, DMT is full of content, right? I mean, it and visuals and and all of this stuff. This is characteristic of experience. 5-MeO is distinguished from it in the sense that there's almost no content. Yeah. You know, there's no, nothing right. visual about no, it. No, no You're content. in a complete state of ego dissolution. Right. Nothing Which to learn. Which is fine. I mean, it's it fine. Be... It's fine if you like going to Coney Island for a quick trip on the on the roller coaster. I want to move on to some questions I have for you. Okay. Freud wore a full beard and he smoked a pipe. For 75 years after Freud, psychologists all around the world wore full beards and smoked pipes. <laughs> Freud saw patients for 50 minutes because he wanted, he saw eight patients a day, 10-minute break, because he wanted a little time to take a pee and write notes. For the, so for 150 years, 30 years now, people all over the world are doing 50-minute sessions uh, for the most part <laughs> and taking a 10-minute break. So right. There's no science behind that length of time whatsoever, and there's no science behind wearing a beard and smoking a pipe. Now, the ayahuasqueros, for some reason, you may know the reason, started their experiences that they gave the ayahuasca people, uh, ayahuasca, they started the experience at night. So we have mm -hmm. all these people coming back from the, from the Amazon and other places, starting people at night. I personally think that's ill-advised because we are at our best during the day. Why would we want to be taking something that's so powerful and be on it at three o'clock in the morning when our diurnal rhythm is slowing us down, we're getting cold, and, it, and we're in a deep sleep state? I think it's a mistake. Catherine McLean told me this week that at Johns Hopkins, they start at eight or nine o'clock in the morning, which makes much more sense to me. It Was there a reason? So that's question number one was, was there a reason that they started at night? Do you know of anything? Any Is there anything behind well, that? I, no, I think it's tradition, basically. I mean, traditionally, they do it at night. Sometimes they take ayahuasca during the day. You know, I've taken it during the day uh, a number of occasions, but I actually prefer taking it at night. Oh, I, I prefer starting early because I you know, like to go to bed fairly early. And one nice thing about psych, about uh, about ayahuasca is, uh, you know, the effect lasts six to seven hours, usually not much longer than that. So, you know, you can, you can take it at eight in the evening, and by the time it's one in the morning, you're pretty much done. You can go off to bed and have some nice dreams. I do like taking it at night. It's just a preference. It feels safer especially mm. in these environments where you've got, you know, the, the resonance, the music and that sort of thing. And, you know, you don't have to have eye shade. I mean, you know, there, there are visual, there are visual episodes with it, but I, th I think it's a matter of preference really uh, more than, more than anything else uh, minimizes distractions. Cause you know, if you're doing it uh, you know, in the daytime, well, it depends. You know, if you can, if you're doing it in the daytime in the right setting, it can shift the focus to what's uh, happening outside, not inside. And uh, 
And, you know, if you're in a great natural setting, that can be wonderful, you know, to look at natural processes, look at nature in this altered state. So again, it's, it's that there is no rule about this. It's all about what seems appropriate. As long as you think, you know, thoughtfully about what the appropriate setting is and then go with that and you can, you can play with that. You know, you can try it during the day, yeah. at night, uh, you know. No reason really to wait till three of the morning. I'm with you there. You know, <laughs> okay. That time I'm tired. I don't want to, you know. Although back in the back in the sixties, I did have several friends who, uh, you know, they enjoyed taking LSD. They would wake up at four in the morning and they would take LSD. And then the idea was they'd go back to sleep, and when they woke up, they were fully on. You know, I sort of never saw the point. But they seem to <laughs> interesting enjoy thing that. to do. Okay, next question: boundaries. Boundaries can boundaries. lead. Boundaries can lead to adverse effects. We need to provide safety. You're right. big on safety. I'm big on safety. Let's talk about what we can do so that therapists giving psychedelic medicine don't intrude on the person sexually that they've given the medicine to, and right. don't intrude. In other word, ways, on their personal lives, such as possibly financial, because these mm -hmm. are things that we know from therapy and from doctors and from lawyers, having nothing to do with psychedelic science, that there is a percentage of therapists, of physicians and lawyers, not to mention other occupations, of course, who, when they have people in a vulnerable position, have been known to do adverse things sexually and financially. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so this just goes back to, uh, you know, human nature. I mean, people, uh, there are uh, predators. There are people with loose ethics who don't respect those boundaries. And you're taking psychedelics deliberately. The whole point is you're putting yourself in an open, vulnerable situation. You know, the whole idea is you're letting your defenses down. I think what it comes down to, Richard, is know your therapist. We're doing with people that you know and trust. This is not always easy to find a practitioner that you do. But believe me, I don't think it's a good idea to, you know, go on the go on the the web and and make reservations at the first retreat center that comes up. You know, uh, I mean, it may be fine. Most of them do off, operate ethically, but some don't. And so it's important. I think it's important to have a personal connection with the person or at least be recommended by people that have been to the place that, that can tell you, that can, you know, express confidence in the thing. And this is another reason why it's important to have at least several Zoom conversations if, or at least one Zoom conversation and ideally uh, a personal meeting with the therapist or therapists uh, before the session, just just to get a feel for what they're like, you know, yeah. in an unaltered state. Do they yeah. seem like reasonable people who have your best interests at heart, you know, and you don't always know, but it's, it's all about, you know, and it's not, it's not restricted to psychedelics in every kind of spiritual tradition. You know, there is an elo, there is this dynamic and people enter into these uh, practices with the idea that they're going to open themselves up. 
well, if the therapist is, you know, a sociopath or a predator or someone that likes to use that occasion to gain advantage of people sexually, financially, any other way, then it's perfect for them, you know, and you have to, uh, you have to be aware of it, you know? I mean, that's, I don't think it's, well, I can't say how prevalent it is. I'd like to think that it's rare, yeah. you know? Well, it's, but re- it we is, don't it's know. relatively rare. You and I would know much more about it because we know of the cases there in the wind. I interviewed a guy, right. a man, a few months ago named Hunt Priest, and he's an Episcopal priest. When he was 52 years old, he decided he wanted to take psychedelics. All his life, he was turned off. He was scared. He thought he might jump out of a window. He believed all the government nonsense. 52, he decides he wants to do it, and he can't find a guide. And it took a long time for him to find a guide. He finally did. He had a wonderful experience. Two years later, he took it again, had a wonderful experience. And so he decided to start something called the Christian Psychedelic Society, whose sole purpose is to help people find reputable guides. Pretty cool thing to do. And the name of the, Mm -hmm. it's called Legate, uh, the Christian Psychedelic Society. And you don't have to be a Christian, I don't think, to to go to them for help, but they're helping people find guides. Um, uh, Dave Nichols told me, Dave Nichols, for everybody who don't know who he is, he's like the, the king or the crown prince of, of LSD. He's probably the most knowledgeable person on the planet of LSD. I imagine Dennis agrees with me. Um, well, absolutely. Another psychedelics. He's the, he's the king of uh, psychedelic chemistry. Okay. The king was. of psychedelic chemistry told me on this program, and it's in my first book, Psychedelic Medicine, no one has ever died from taking LSD. We don't know of anyone who's ever died from taking MDMA, although people have died while on MDMA at, when, when getting overheated and going into hot tubs because they're of elevated blood pressure. What about so how is that not dying from taking Well, well it is dying, but it, it, it's a dying because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a combination of taking it in a certain circumstance. So there's a warning. You don't take it in that circumstance. But uh, right. in other words, yeah. if, you're in, if you're following Dennis McKenna's advice on set and setting, you're safe because you're not going to be overheated and you're not going to be shooting your blood right. pressure up. And with this the- is why it's important to come to these things from a informed place, you know, educate yourself about them before. I mean, talk to the therapist, certainly, but then do your own research as well. You know, uh, look at resources like arrowit.org and so on. Erwin.org is a tremendous uh, resource for one part of it that's very helpful, I think, are the trip reports, you know, especially if you've had no experience with these substances. If you go to Erwin, look up the substance and look at the trip report, there are usually many trip reports. It's useful to review that. Then you get a better idea what you're looking at, you may encounter. You know, it doesn't mean that that's going to happen to you, but you get a feeling of the of the spectrum of reactions that you might have. Let's underline what Dennis said in red. Arrowwood, E-R-O-W-I-D, E-R-O-W-I-D. And look dot it up on org. Google. Dot org. Right. Thank you. Arrowwood.org. Tremendous resource. Oh, a wonderful service for the psychedelic community. There's great people running that site. Yes, very much so. I always like to plug. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about emotional a little bit about physiological and a little bit about boundaries. 
Is there anything else on adverse effects you might want to add, Dennis? In fact, let well, me do, let me do this before you answer. Let me give you some time to reflect, and I'll do a commercial, and then I'll come back to you. It's not really a commercial, okay. but I'll make a comment. Um, okay. I'd like, I'd, please uh, go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Check out the archives. They're free, open source. There's a wealth of information for you. Look at the archives on mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. If you push the subscribe button, it'll help us in some way. I'm not sure how, but it will. Also, take a look at my two books, Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom. And while I'm at it, look at Dennis McKenna, M little C K E N N A, and check out his books. You gotta, you have to read The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. That's an absolute must. Everybody has to read that book. And then, <laughs> and there's a new edition out. And there's a new edition. That's right. There's a new there's edition a of it. Tenth anniversary edition. Fantastic. With actual new stuff. Oh, it. there is. So, well, we maybe have to get a copy and get you back. So do that, uh, folks. If you bought the book ten years ago. Now you have to buy the new one because there's a new chapter. Okay. <laughs> I just found out okay, that my enough, that, enough shapeless self promotion. <laughs> I just yeah, we got in trouble for this once in the old days. I remember when I was on uh, national public radio, we did too much uh, talking about those uh, our books. Did you think of anything you want to add before we end? It, not really. I think we pretty much covered it. I, I think I mean something we have not mentioned that maybe is worth mentioning is this uh this syndrome called i think it's called persistent or pers- persistent hallucinogen perceptual disorder or something like that uh it's a recognized syndrome it's very rare but this is this is where you know this addresses that rare situation where you expect to come back you expect the default network to re re constitute itself and you return to consensus reality. Sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, for a very small number of people, they have persistent effects. And uh, uh, and it's not clear that uh, there's anything to be done about it. And it's not clear. I don't want to alarm people. I just, it, it, to really cover the bases about adverse effects, it's important to uh, to mention this, and actually, Rick Strassman, who I believe you've interviewed on your show, yes, has published a couple of papers about this. So you know, it does happen, but it's it's rare. That doesn't mean that. Uh, and, and well, you know, that's it's just worth worth mentioning. Yeah, uh, it's H uh, H HPPD, hallucinogenic persistent perceptual disorder. It even got its own little it. diagnosis. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, I would say, you know, I hear from people that uh, sometimes, you know, they have series of very powerful experiences and they they uh, get into a place of delusion, you know, and I can sympathize because I did it myself <laughs> back in the day. But it's important to, again, get the perspective of what you're experiencing uh you know, how does it stack up in the face of cold, hard reality? You know, does it still, and, and sometimes people, you know, write to me and say, you know, oh, I've figured out that, you know, I'm the Messiah, or that sort of thing. You know, uh, I, I am the person destined to 
save the world. And, and, you know, my response to these folks is usually, dude, you don't need to tell me this. You need to be talking to your therapist, you know, because you're seriously deluded. Yeah. You know, and, and usually that, that is not a welcome message, but that's what I would tell people out of compassion, you know, because you can get into these places of delusion and, uh, you know, it can be serious uh, estrangement from reality, whatever reality is. I mean, we, we can't take psychedelics and say that reality is just this one thing, but there is a, you know, something that we might call an ordinary, non-ordinary state of consciousness, which is for good or bad, that's where we are most of the time, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, so that, it, that's something to be aware of. Sure. It's not something to worry about. I mean, I think most people, I guess the message here is if if you're in that state and persistently having these experiences, it's kind of the advice is, you know, when you're digging a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging, right? So what I advise people to do if they're getting into this state of delusion that just builds on itself, first thing, stop taking psychedelics for a while. You don't have to take them all the time. Right. You know, give yourself a month, give yourself six months, give yourself a year. Yes. Step back from it. That doesn't mean a lack of courage. That means... A lot of that just it just convinces it just it demonstrates common sense. Caution is the better part of valor, right? Did I, did I, have I ever told you the story when I thought people were breaking down the walls and were going to take me away while I was on LSD? Did I tell you that story? I, no, I, you didn't. Well, I, I this is I took four hundred morning glory seeds, uh, heavenly blue, because you know Leary and Alpert wrote about that in the back of their book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And so I'm way out in the zone and I'm having a fabulous time. And all of a sudden I got really scared. I heard banging and I was just certain that because uh, this comes back to my feeling about doing something wrong because I was so mm-hmm. strongly brought up by my parents to be honest and, and follow the law and tell the truth that when I'm doing anything wrong, I feel like really terrible. And of course I was doing something wrong. I was taking this illegal substance and all of a sudden, I'm sure that the police are at the at the door and they're banging on the door and I hear the banging and I hear the banging and I'm getting more and more scared. I'm afraid to go to the door. I've got my eye shades on, right? So I'm not looking at anything. And I'm in 1965 and, and I'm really getting more and more scared. And then finally, I had the courage to take the eye shades off and I look out the window and there are two telephone linemen there with hammers and they're hammering on the walls and then... <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and I, I, I laughed my head off and it was a wonderful educational experience, you know, and, and I've learned so much of it for future. But it shows you, you know, how the setting is so important, what you talked about, because part of what I learned from that is I'm a person who needs real quiet when I take psychedelics, because any kind of sound can create a feeling. It can, can create all kinds of feelings. Like when Leo Zepp, the secret chief, he played he played Beethoven's Fifth to me while I was under the influence of LSD. And all I could focus on was Beethoven's brilliance and how he could possibly write such a thing. And the music took, you know, took over my whole being. And what I learned from that is don't use music. I'm much better without any whatsoever because I don't want the music in me. 
I want to deal with my own self. That's another conversation, Richard. But yes, classical music is not necessarily what the kind of music you want. Oh my gosh, Dennis, I couldn't believe the guy was able to do all that, but that's what I focused on. I'm I'm going to leave you with a teaser for our next meeting, which will come after I read the latest copy of your book. And here's the teaser that I want you to think about, and then then we're going to end the, the... Just like there's this HPPD, hallucinogenic persistent perceptual disorder, I have one called HIN, hypocrisy-induced neurosis. It's, (laughs) It's when leaders of the country tell us to act one way, or leaders of the church, or leaders of anything, they tell us to act one way, and then they act the exact opposite way. So like a politician rants against homosexuals, and then he gets caught in a men's room trying to give a blowjob to the guy in the next hypocrisy-induced neurosis. And the other one I want to talk to you about, if you have a chance to think I made up, is post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. I think the whole country is suffering from it, that we have so distorted our views on human sexuality that we're all screwed up about it. Every single person, there's hardly a person who isn't screwed up either by their religious beliefs, moral beliefs, cultural beliefs, or something else, that we, we, have, we are so distant from what sexuality really is. So give that thought. Hypocrisy-induced neurosis, post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. We'll talk about I it. I think both of those syndromes are practically epidemic, Richard, <laughs> you know, in our culture. I mean, it's interesting and dismaying to me how preoccupied the uh, you know, the right that the Republicans are about, you know, homosexuality, transgender issues, all of these things, you know, I mean, these are, why should they care? You know, well, that's what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about that next time because I, I, we're going to have well, to, okay. well, you want to go on? <laughs> I forget, you know, so, on an internet broadcast, we can go on indefinitely. <laughs> we could go on indefinitely. Let's continue. Richard, Let's continue. I'll, I'll probably... I'll imagine I'll run into you in Denver. Yes, I very much would love to to see you in Denver and give you a big hug. Yeah, so we'll let it go for now. Okay. Great to talk to you. Yeah, send me a copy of your latest book, please. And thank you. I'll have some at the, I'll have some in Denver. I'll put you on the list. Thank you. Okay. And thank you for being with us and taking your time here today, Dennis McKenna. It's been wonderful having you here. Always a pleasure. And thank you all listeners for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast at 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning as we have for the last 20 years. And you can also go to the archives of all of us modern people do and listen anytime, anywhere. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psychospiritual Healing, co-edited. 
Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health.